America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap, providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Will Donald Trump stand trial during Super Tuesday? Is Ron DeSantis responsible for racist murders? And will we remask? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brennan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Babel and Fast Growing Trees. More about them. And do course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, MBD, we really missed talking about this last week because we were consumed by the debate, but we had the fourth uh, arrest and arraignment of Donald Trump, and it was a doozy. This one is bigger than ever because they finally got their mugshot of Trump when Alvin Bragg was set to indict Trump. I said, you know, all they want is a mugshot. Turns out in New York, they don't do or release mugshots anymore, but they did it down in Georgia, and it's epic. You have this glowering Donald Trump, who with with golden hair, who instantly posted the photo himself and totally owned it. They've been selling merch on it, and they've raised more on this arrest than any other. I think it was seven point one million is what they said in the first day. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, this is the road where we're being marched down, and it's a dangerous one. I mean, I remember, you know. I'm, little over two months ago, um, Mark Levin roaring, there is no law. It's a war on Trump. It's a war on the Republican Party. And um, that's what Trump is leaning into, is all these indictments are coming, and he is um, making them out to be political, improper political prosecutions of the opposition. And, um, you know, there's a kind of, there's always been in America a kind of uh, glamour that is attached to crime, and he's kind of leaning into it, you know, mm-hmm. um, like the James he, the James Gang. Yeah, there's a, yeah, exactly, like an outlaw on behalf <laughs> of the people, right? Robin like Hood, kind of Robin Hood, uh, you know, legend. And Robin Hood was a socialist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Donald Trump promised he would take care of everyone. Um, 
So maybe we're not far off. Uh, no, but I, I think this is, um, you know, this was inevitable once people wanted, uh, if people wanted a mugshot, of course it was going to uh, reverberate backward on them as Trump supporters embraced the mugshot and embraced the outlaw image and the kind of defiant look that Trump gives in it. I mean, you saw the Atlantic whining that the the mugshot wasn't humiliating enough to Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I, I've said in columns, uh, you know, there's a reason why we have norms against prosecuting political opponents and norms for granting clemency to them in some cases. And we have norms that when you're indicted, you don't run for office. Um because this is a dangerous mix-up. And I, I honestly think um, you have uh, what we're heading towards if Donald Trump stays popular among the Republican Party is a contest between what is the source of legitimacy in the United States? Is it the law as prosecuted by Democrats in their districts? Or is it democracy as mm-hmm. practiced by Republicans in theirs? And that that's an that's interesting framing. You should write that. I ha- I mean, I, I have I have written it that uh, I written, wrote one piece saying that there's a kind of spirit in democracy that, re- you know, once someone submits mm-hmm. themselves to the judgment of the public, the public kind of reserves to itself the final judgment and 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 sort of sort of shrieks at any other um, authority or institution that would get in their way of of pronouncing their verdict. And, and I just think, I think this is a, a very dangerous road and everyone, if, and everyone was responsible should be seeking ways to avoid traveling down it further. Mm-hmm. That includes, in other words, I mean, Trump should drop out. Biden should instruct the justice department to drop the charges. Mm-hmm. We should, we should just get as clear away from this as, as possible, yeah. but we're not, we're going to march right down right. into the gullet. Yeah, we're marching right down to the gullet, and the gullet on the January 6th case, Noah, is uh, according to this latest ruling of this judge, we'll see if it stands, this Obama appointee, is the Monday before Super Tuesday. And I know we're, we're on a different, in a different place on this indictment, but from where I sit, this is just, it's inherently problematic. There's no good time to do this. There's, there's no time to do it when it doesn't interfere or run up against the, the political calendar and in really awkward ways. And the idea that you'd have this leading candidate for president tied down in a courtroom on, on one of the most important dates in the primary calendar just seems outrageous to me. Well, that's the rub, isn't it? I mean, the trial had to happen sometime. Government didn't seek this date. Government saw January 2 as the trial date. The Trump camp wanted the trial to begin on the 12th of never sometime in 2026. It had to find a medium somewhere, and it was going to fall in the election year. Whose fault is that? Is it the government's fault? Is it, is it the special prosecutor for bringing these charges? Depends on how you view the charges. And again, we can litigate the issue of the charges. But the judge's decision to set this trial on this date, we would be having the same argument if it was ahead of the Indiana primary, or if it was ahead of the Georgia primary or if it was during the debates in the summer, or if it was ahead of the general election in November. It was going to happen at a certain point. And the fundamental obstacle before us here, rendering a judgment on whether the government is exceeding its bounds, is is we have to subordinate the behavior that got us to this point in order to evaluate how people are responding to it. 
And I think that just reverses the order of the sequence of events here in ways that make evaluating it very difficult. Uh, Donald Trump's behavior got us to this point. Whether you think the government is responding to it excessively or not excessively enough, which is a point of view that is not represented here, but is one that is abroad, or should have responded to it at all, what we're talking about are reactions to events, not the precipitation of the event itself. So I, I do lack a certain amount of uh, enthusiasm for the idea that the president and his uh, co-conspirators are being persecuted here, especially since this, as we said, as Michael said, the, that um, that uh, headshot, the mugshot, is a, a giant gift to the Trump campaign. The Trump campaign and its supporters argue that the president is being un treated unfairly because he's not receiving special treatment. We can litigate that one way or the other. But raising $7.1 million on this thing is a monster haul. No other campaign has, has generated that much support from a one-day event. I think Nikki Haley said she raised about a million dollars from her stellar debate performance. That's a ton of money from a one-day event. It's nowhere near $7.1 million. And the people who contributed to this campaign, look, if the Trump campaign had structured itself as a 501c3, at least his contributors could be calling up for a write-off for his donations to his legal defense fund. That is what they're contributing to. Um, unfortunately, they don't, they don't get that privilege. But all of this is playing in Donald Trump's favor, and everybody's behaving in ways that I don't, I don't see them having any other way out of. I mean, everybody's in a terrible position here, and they're all playing their assigned roles, but what are we to expect? Are we to expect the government to just drop the case? Or do we expect Donald Trump to demure and refuse to raise funds off this thing, or not pretend like he's being persecuted politically? Everybody's playing their assigned roles to the detriment of the American social compact. Yeah, well, a lot depends just on, on how strong you think the, the underlying case is. But Charlie, the, the timing here is Republicans could end up nominating a guy who quite plausibly, sometime after they've nominated him, will be convicted of a felony or felonies. And if they do, that will be a choice. It will not be a surprise. They have plenty of warning. And they know that Donald Trump has poor judgment. Even if you think every single one of these civil and criminal cases, of which there are now seven in total, three civil, four criminal, is trumped up, to coin a phrase, you have to acknowledge that the guy does not help himself. Even if you think that... Donald Trump is unfairly treated. You have to acknowledge that he willingly walks into the jaws of his opponents in a way that other candidates do not. If he is in the midst of a trial, if he's convicted, if there's a raging debate about how he will be punished if he's found guilty... And the Republican Party chooses, nevertheless, to put him forward as its candidate. It will be making a conscious choice, knowing full well the likely or potential consequences. And I'm afraid that I have little sympathy for that. Noah and I have debated the extent to which those who have brought these charges have massaged the law or made imprudent decisions or squinted at the underlying statutes and constitutional provisions, but it is simply not the case 
that Donald Trump is a completely innocent party in this saga. And if voters choose to put him forward, nevertheless, they will be making a case that they would rather issue that statement than they would win. Or if they believe that he's going to win, that they are willing to take the risk, nevertheless. I think it is imperative as conservatives and as Americans that people who locate themselves on the political right maintain their own agency. This is the primary reason that I am a conservative. I believe in individual responsibility and agency. I do not believe that people are moved into actions by these grand, invisible forces of history. I do not believe that Republicans can be forced to nominate or defend Donald Trump. It will be a choice. Uh, That is important to reiterate. That will be a choice. So yes, that is a possibility, Rich. But if Republicans do that, they will not be able to say that they weren't warned. So MBD, you've had different reactions to Trump's legal troubles. You had Chris Christie at the debate saying, look, guys, whatever you think of the legal merits of this, the underlying conduct is horrible, intolerable, unforgivable. Then you have a lot of the the rest of the field, including DeSantis, saying, well, this this is a two-tiered system of justice. This is a weaponization of the Justice Department. I'm going to end this on, on day one when I'm elected president. And yeah, you know, Donald Trump's probably not the best electoral bet. Where would MBD, if you were trying to win the Republican presidential nomination, <laughs> what, where would you come down? What would you be saying about all this? Oh, my God. If I was trying to win? <laughs> yes. <laughs> not, not, you know, some, not, just running, not just running for a Fox show, but, but trying to win. I mean, I, it's, it's crazy, premise, but let's posit it. <laughs> on the premise that you're a dishonest, power-seeking madman, putting your family through the ringer for no good reason. Um, answer this question. Uh, all right. Uh, if I was trying to win, I think I'd be close. I wouldn't give Christie's answer exactly. Um, listen, I do. I, I agree with Charlie about personal responsibility. I also agree that it applies to Trump's opponents that, like, you know, if you see someone... Um, stomping mad, like you don't start throwing around fighting words and provoking them either. Um, because there are predictable consequences, even if that person has agency. And, um, so yeah, I mean, uh, it's very difficult. I I don't, I worry that the Republican electorate does not want their candidate to look like they are cooperating with the Democrats trying to cashier Trump. And so you, you, you have to have a different line of attack. Um, so yeah, I think I would, I would be closer to the Ramaswamy, uh, DeSantis line. If I were running, uh, that's not the most honest or honorable line, but I do think it's the most politically advantageous for now. Um, Trump has to sink himself with his voters and has to be sunk on other issues, I mean, you know, to be, you, you have to make the case if you're trying to win, um, not just that like, oh, Democrats hate him so much, but that I'm, I'm going to do a better job as president than he would. And that'll be the winning case if there is a winning case against Trump.
Yeah, it's very hard. Harry Enten, the polling analyst over at CNN, the other day had a piece, just every Republican who's frontally criticized Donald Trump is just deeply unpopular with the party. So it's a very tough nut to crack. Let me stick with you, MBD, though, on the exit question, rank the Trump mugshot in terms of its iconic, memorable nature compared to these other iconic images. The cover of the Abbey Road album, the Muhammad Ali Sonny Liston photo with, with oh, a- Ali standing in triumph over Liston, or the, and I should say, the, the Nixon Elvis Presley Oval Office meeting. Where would you rank it? You have four images, the Trump mugshot, Abbey Road, Muhammad Ali, Elvis and Nixon. Yeah, Trump's third. Um, fourth is the Nixon Elvis First is uh, Ali over Liston, and second is Abbey Road. Uh, I had I had um, the privilege in first grade of being sent to the sixth grade classroom to buy a new folder, and I was able to buy the one with Ali over Liston. It's an amazing photo. None of my none of the first other first graders had access to, and they were so jealous. It's got to be the the greatest sports photo of the the twentieth century. No Rothman. It's difficult to rank it. Um, on the criteria that you just said, if I had to choose among your um, choices, I would go with Nixon Elvis because it is pop cultural and uh, I think... As number one? Ref- well, it, it, it's equivalent. Perhaps mm-hmm. closer to number one. I mean, the direct equivalence here is Frank Sinatra's mugshot in Hoboken, which is popularized mm. because it appears behind Tony Soprano in Satriali's Pork Store. It is mm. an image for the aspiring mobster of the coolness of a guy mm, who actually flops the law and gets away with it. Ah, all right. So, so, so that's, that's an interesting addition. But, Char- Charlie, let's stick with the four, the four images. I have a feeling what you're going to go with, with with number one. I don't think the Trump mugshot's iconic, and I don't think it will be relevant in 50 years. I don't think the Nixon Elvis photograph is particularly iconic either. I think the other two are stratospherically iconic. I would put Abbey Road slightly ahead of the Muhammad Ali Sonny Liston photo just because it's been so widely parodied. Although you could make an argument that that makes the Ali Liston photo more iconic because it can't be as effectively. But either way, those two will stand the test of time. There was a tweet, I think it was from Clay Travis, saying this is now the most iconic photograph in American history. Well, it's not. There are... Many, many other photographs, the great photograph of Lincoln in his office, the flag raising at Iwo Jima, the tired and hungry face of the lady with the children during the Depression, Martin Luther King on the National Mall. This is not up there. I don't think that Donald Trump is going to be very important in American history in 50 years' time. Mm. So I would put it... That's optimistic. Lower yes. down the list. Well, I don't. I don't think we're living through a particularly important time in American history. I don't think we're living through a particularly memorable time. It feels as if we are. That's not to say that what Donald so, Trump so you just did think it's, wasn't it's, egregious. It's basically it's in, it's it's all been inconsequential. It's kind of been interesting. It felt like it's it's really compelling because it's you know different, but it's not particularly meaningful. Well, I don't think that the events of January sixth and what precipitated it are inconsequential. I think they're impeachable. I just think that. In the grand sweep of American history, they don't coincide with anything tectonic. And even the political undulations that we're living through 
are not unique. William Jennings Bryan was nominated three times in a row. Mm -hmm. He lost and lost and lost. There must have been Democrats in that era who wanted to tear their hair out. Why right. do we keep picking this guy? He can't right, but we, we, form but a we coalition. Barely, we barely think about him. But we, we don't care mm -hmm. anymore because it didn't coincide with anything that we identify with or that really mattered. Unlike Franklin Roosevelt, who was in office during both the Depression and the Second World War, unlike John F. Kennedy, who was murdered, unlike Ronald Reagan, who is not only more recent, but was president when we finally reversed inflation and beat the Soviet Union, well, I know George H.W. Bush was, there's nothing that is happening at the moment that is particularly Ooh. interesting. And I don't think that Trump or that mugshot is, is going to be a topic of conversation by the time I'm ending my life. Yeah, I think all these answers have been have been Nearing great. the end of my life, I should say. I'm not that depressed. <laughs> <laughs> I think all these answers have been great. I'm I'm with MBD though. I go Ali Liston, Abbey Road, and then I, I take Charlie's point way down the list. Um, is uh, th this this mugshot? But I, I rank it above Elvis and Nixon. I do think it's going to stand for this this era. And I, I take Charlie's points about it, it's not you know it's, it's not like the run up to the Civil War or something. But crazy stuff is no, going to happen. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's the run it's the run down of the boomers. Right. I mean, it's it's like finally, like after two or three generations of misbehavior, you know, we went from giving Clinton a little like slap on the wrist to actually slapping the cuffs on a boomer and Trump. This is like the judgment of history finally coming in on the worst generation to ever live on the face of the earth. Very literary, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and and you can also hear Helen Andrews sitting behind you applauding. <laughs> Also, who who looks good in any any mugshot or DMV photo or a passport photo? I mean, it really sp speaks to the the branding genius of this guy for for better or worse that he was able to make this much out of uh, a mugshot. So, with that, let's hear from our first sponsor this episode, Babbel. The best way to learn a language is through immersion, living where the language is spoken natively and using it every day. But that's not possible for everyone. So, what's the second best way to learn a language? Babbel. Because with Babbel, you can start speaking a new language in just three weeks this summer. Well, last year, you can start speaking a new language with Babbel. Why Babbel? Because it works. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or fooling yourself with language apps that are a little more than games, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations. All of Babbel's tips and tools for learning a new language are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based Teaching studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. For instance, one study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. With over 10 million subscriptions sold, Babbel is real language learning for real conversation. And here's a limited special deal for our listeners to get you started right now. Get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for listeners to this very podcast at babbel.com slash editors. That's Babbel. Dot com slash editors get 55% off. It's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash editors. And of course, rules and restrictions may apply. So Charlie, we had this hideous mass murder at a Dollar General in Jacksonville, a racist killer. There's no 
doubt about it. You can quibble, uh, com complain justly about how uh, soon we know about the manifestos of white nationalist racist killers and how we, we never see, uh, in some cases, the manifestos of um, killers with other motivations. But there's just no, no doubt that, th that this guy was out to kill African-Americans. Awfully, tragically, he, he did. Shot three people in cold blood before taking his own life. Uh, Ron DeSantis suspended his campaign to go down and deal with this and also an impending hurricane. We were recording here on Tuesday morning. He was heckled at a community event. One of the community leaders, to her great credit, said, hey, come on, guys, this is not the time uh, for partisan politics. Bullets do not know partisan politics. And then you've had a, a predictable but nonetheless shameful spate of commentary saying, look, we knew this was going to happen. We warned the governor, his attack on African-Americans through his history curriculum, through his apologies for slavery, would em empower and mobilize racists out there. The worst has happened and the blood is on his hands. This is about the worst thing a person can do, especially in the American South, with its history. If we teach anything, it's that hating people based on their immutable characteristics is wrong, and hurting them because of it is the depths of sin. And there's no other way of looking at this other than as an illustration of the worst that human beings are capable of. The perpetrator hated black people. He was a white supremacist, a neo-Nazi. And he killed them for no other reason other than that they had a different skin color than his own. It is abhorrent. And you know, I find it alarming and uh, I don't understand it. I expect it because this does happen in the world, but I don't understand it. There's very little more to say about the event than that, and I think we have seen round condemnations from everyone as a result. Thankfully, we do not live anymore in the 1890s where this is a popular or defensible thing to do or it's covered up or even endorsed in law. I want to complain as a result about the attempt by many in the press to turn this into something other than the worst thing that anybody can do that has been roundly condemned by everyone. Specifically, the attempt to link it in some way to Governor DeSantis or to Florida's legislature or to the state or to anyone other than the person who carried it out. Once again, we see the press corps treating Florida differently than New York. Yesterday, there was a press conference at the White House and a reporter from NPR invited the president's spokesman to connect this terrible act to Ron DeSantis's opposition to DEI and to the school curriculum here. And I wrote 
in response and ask the same question I always ask when the press does this. By what mechanism could these two things possibly be linked? It's absurd. I want to know why the press does this, especially when, from my perspective at least, DeSantis's response was excellent. He didn't fluff this. He didn't mince words. He didn't stay campaigning. He didn't talk about something else. He immediately made a response video in which he called the guy a scumbag, acknowledged the racist nature of the shooting, said that he had taken the coward's way out, and vowed funding for a historically black university that might be under threat. And yet, what are we here today? DeSantis, Florida, Republicans. There's a reported piece today in The Messenger that indirectly inquires as to why the press's response to this shooting has been different than, say, the racist attack from Buffalo, New York last year. If you recall, in that shooting, a racist madman walked into a supermarket and killed people based on their race. He used an AR-15 that was illegal in New York. He left a manifesto. It was identical, except it was, unfortunately, four times more deadly than the shooting in Florida, which is pretty much an accident. I have no doubt that this Floridian gunman would have killed as many as he could. But he didn't, thankfully, mercifully. But when that happened in Buffalo, New York, the press didn't say a word to Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York. They didn't blame her. They didn't look for reasons that it could have been her fault. They didn't throw up non-sequiturs or insinuations or smears. They didn't ask Republicans to criticize her stance on this or that. They didn't call up pro-life charities who talk about the devaluation of life and say, look at New York's laws, now look at what happened. They didn't do it. They didn't say, as this guy at the Associated Press, the chief political reporter at the Associated Press, Steve Peoples, I think his name is, said, let me find this tweet on my phone, Ron DeSantis scoffed when the NAACP issued a travel advisory this spring warning black people to use extreme care if traveling to Florida. Just three months later, DeSantis is leading his state through the aftermath of a racist attack that left three African-Americans dead. That is disgraceful. That is utterly disgraceful. And by that logic, should we assume that New York is four times more dangerous than Florida for black people? Or is that an insane and stupid and counterproductive way to look at this? I tell you what, Rich, I feel today as somebody who is very close to this. This happened very close to where I live. I feel like this is COVID all over again when New York is presumed to be virtuous and Florida is presumed to be evil and the national press that is based in New York is just going to run with that. Why didn't the press do this to Hochul, I'll tell you. It's because the press shares Hochul's politics. That's why that's it. Effectively, this is an extortion racket. In America, if the politics of the politician is shared by the media, then the media agrees not to blame that politician for things that aren't that politician's fault. But if the media doesn't share that politician's politics, well, then you get a visit from Uncle Salvatore. Then you get blamed for things you couldn't possibly have done. Then the press will use any tragedy or abomination to push against a set of unrelated politics that it dislikes. It is a disgrace, and it is counterproductive, and it 
pulls us backwards in time and it divides people when they didn't need dividing and it makes people think that we've made less progress than we have and it polarizes people who are quite willing to come together. DeSantis showed up knowing there would be activists there who would boo him and he didn't care. He went there anyway. He said what he said. What he said was good and welcome and necessary and he still got all of this. And I think that that is a profound shame because there is no one in the real world where I live who thinks that this is political, who heard this news and said, oh, well, this is because of the Democrats or the Republicans or Christians or non-Christians or whatever. Come on. Come on. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, entirely predictable, which doesn't make any less disgusting. I mean, Charlie laid it out really well. It's not just predictable, it's rote. The template was established in 2010-2011 with Gabriel Gifford's shooting, and they haven't deviated it from, from it since. We get the national press blames a, a disturbed a map, mentally... Right? A ment- I'm sorry? They, they blame Sarah Palin's map for, for the, the act map. of this. They blame some, some act of political rhetoric for the behavior of a mentally disturbed individual. Republicans bristle, and by the time it comes out that the individual was a di- diagnosed schizophrenic or what have you, we've already moved on. There's no rough equivalent on the other side when a Democrat commits an act, an act of violence. We talk about root causes and the need to cool the temperature down and the tone and tenor of national rhetoric because of the national media, mainstream media monopoly. Um, and you get some irresponsible actors from Fox who will perhaps try to turn the tables. But there's no rough equivalent there. We also have the... Um, local lawmaker in the opposition who becomes a national media celebrity for a minute. In this one, it's going to be Angela Nixon, um, who has been all over MSNBC saying the most irresponsible things you could possibly say, saying that Ron DeSantis, quotes targets black people, um, that he fanned the flames. He's the one who lit the match. Uh, all this stuff She said is, they banned black history in Florida right. and they banned diversity in Florida. Good Lord. So I don't, but I don't think this reflects especially well on anybody in this conversation, but Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He showed up. He looks big. His critics look small and petty and um, uh, obsessive over picky and stuff. Um, I kind of, I don't think this is going to redound to anything other than Ron DeSantis' benefit, if it does at all. Because what everybody's hearing, if you're just casually perusing the media, it's that Ron DeSantis got booed and booed again. That's the headline. It's everywhere. Ron DeSantis booed at this event. And they're attempting to make some connection. The press is actively attempting to make some connection between uh, an act of murderous racist violence and uh, legislative policy. And that is just so profoundly irresponsible that you really have to be a very committed partisan activist on the left to subordinate everything you know about human nature and legitimacy of legislative action and the illegitimacy of extra-legal violence like this. I don't think that resonates with average people. And they kind of might know that they're being manipulated by the media's coverage into a preferred conclusion about Ron DeSantis's proximate responsibility for this act of racist violence. Just even saying that sentence is absurd. And if you, you would have to not say that sentence to yourself in your head in order to reach the conclusion that the press is trying to drag you into. So, NBD, if you reverse the partisan valence here and it's a, a Democrat showing up in, in some hostile 
area and gets booed and heckled, it, the boos wouldn't wouldn't be presumed to be serious commentary on the legitimacy of this democratic politician. They would the, the coverage would be how terrible it is that this person has been booed and heckled at a, a solemn event um, memorializing victims of a, a horrible act of mass murder. Correct, and that's why Noah's is right that if if there is a political effect for this. Uh, on DeSantis, it will redound to his benefit because he went there and he endured this treatment. He conducted himself with dignity and he endures the unfair treatment in the press and the the ridiculous treatment in the press with dignity and continues about the business of the state. We're now preparing it for the landing of a, of a serious hurricane. Um, You know, the more that he is, like the more that he has highlighted doing difficult things with grace and with foresight and with attention to detail, and he's the more he's criticized hysterically while doing it, the the, the more that benefits him. Um, yeah, I mean, there's nothing else. There's nothing else for him to do in this situation but show up and do exactly what he did, which is express, um, you know, depthless. Um, Sorrow for the victims, uh, resolve to um, give them whatever justice is possible, and um, to reassure and back up those who were terror who were terrorized by the attack. Um, so no, he did a fine job, and um, I don't I don't think the double standard hurts him. I think it it helps him. So, Charlie, let's make a perhaps awkward segue to punditry from from this topic, but we'll stay on DeSantis. In your view, what are the percentage odds at this moment that Ron DeSantis will win the Republican presidential nomination? Can I just say before I answer that, that I think Michael's probably right that this will end up helping DeSantis. But in the grand scheme of things, that is much less important to me than that this really hurts America. I know you agree with me, Michael. I just think it needs to be said that yeah. the people who have done this, they really hurt America. It, it is such a, a profoundly evil thing to do to take harmony and community and universal outrage and opprobrium and to try and split it in two. On DeSantis, I think he has a slightly higher chance than he did before. The reason for that has nothing to do with this abomination. The reason is that I think on reflection he won the first debate, or at least he came out of it in the best position. I have heard from a number of people in Iowa that while Trump is undoubtedly winning, the support is softer than the polls often make it look. I think Dasha Burns said that to Chuck Todd and Selena Zito has said something similar. And I think that this hurricane that is heading at the moment for my house (laughs) is going to provide DeSantis with an opportunity to show what he is good at, which is administration. DeSantis is not Ronald Reagan. He lacks his warmth. He's not Bill Clinton. He lacks the interest in people. But he is very good at being an executive. And although, of course, I personally wish this hurricane were not on the way, 
primaries have to be about more than showing up at the Iowa State Fair and indulging Vivek Ramaswamy on a debate stage. And this will give DeSantis a chance to show what he's good at. I think the arrival of Hurricane Ian last year helped DeSantis win as big as he did. I think there were a lot of people who aren't so political who looked at his response and thought that it was impressive. So I would put him now maybe at 30%. 30. Wow. Okay. But I think that Trump is the favorite and it's his to lose. I just think that DeSantis is in a stronger position than he seems to be last time you asked me that question. Noah Rothman. I just want to pivot briefly on what Charlie was saying because it's very good. It's crass politics, but it's a tightrope to walk. If he manages it deftly enough, it could be quite the coup. The the press will deem however that he handles as Ian is the, if the Ian is the example, the press will deem however he handles the hurricane as a failure for the first 24, 48, 72 hours. Um, but the results will speak for itself if, and when they do, as they did in the case yeah, of if Ian. Yeah, pa- if powers out in one neighborhood somewhere in Florida, it'll be sure, a failure. Sure, sure. Oh yeah. It's a disaster. Uh, and it might be, um, but that's the managerial competence is what DeSantis voters like about him. The events in Jacksonville, could appeal to what Trump voters like about Trump insofar as he's the next thing. He's he's the big target. He's got all the right enemies. And he's being persecuted. Um, he's being treated very unfairly by the mainstream press, by these Democratic activists who showed up. Um, it would be difficult to leverage that directly. The, the DeSantis campaign would have to rely on surrogates to retail that message. But the two messages could have a complementary effect. Um, so I'm going to, I do say, I agree with Charlie that he's, he's still behind the eight ball, but 35%, maybe. Wow. Not maybe 40% somewhere along those lines. I mean, so I've been saying so, for a long so time that I think Trump support is softer than it looks in the poll. It's very deep in the middle, the 25%. So on, on Trump, you're like uh, 50% or where, where are you on Trump now? I think he's 45%. Wow. I've been taking, I've I'm said the field, I'm, the field, he's, I, I think I take the field and I still take the field. That's uh, it's bold. MBD. I'm I'm totally with Noah. I was I was going right there. I think DeSantis is either forty or forty five percent for the nomination. I think Trump is forty percent, and then you know, Black Swan. That, that, event is, you think DeSantis has a, a higher chance of winning than Trump? I think yeah. I think I honestly do think that Trump's indictments weigh on him. I think that there is just air coming out of the Trump balloon. I think that. Iowa and New Hampshire are determined to give someone a ride up to give Trump a real challenge. And once that happens, I, I really think all bets are off and all of Trump's downsides start, you know, weighing on the Republican voter. Um, yeah, I, I like I, <laughs> you know, I do believe in, in some kind of inherent value that it's not just like, um, you know, uh, an illusion created by the willfulness of Republican sentiment that, you know, Republican sentiment does follow um, the news and does does have some relationship to uh, who are the strongest candidates. And hmm. So, yeah, I, 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 I would rather be DeSantis right now when you have, um, you have DeSantis's money, his organization, and his now 
any rise is now going to be oh my gosh the comeback mm-hmm. kid yeah that's true yeah, all, all of yeah, that stuff written about that i wrote that yes oh, because yeah, the yeah, press has set so absurdly low expectations for him that they're not hard to meet right and it's just like and not only that but like in effect he's already surpassed them because he survived he, no he survived and and the polls say that like 85 percent of people in iowa who say they support trump in the in the race Say they're considering supporting DeSantis. Like, mm-hmm. So it's, it's just it, there's a huge yeah. The, the way the way someone put it is that DeSantis did, did DeSantis live up to the hype? No, he, he he definitely did not. But has he showed that he can take a punch? Yeah, in the sense that uh, especially in Iowa, he's still quite popular and he still has a lot of voters considering him. I still think you guys are high. I, w- I would say it's about. 20% because in, in Iowa, it looks like, you know, in the best of, um, well, not in the best of circumstances, but it, even even if you get uh, DeSantis or someone else getting some pickup, it could still be a multi-car pileup that could favor Trump. So I'm, I'm not as high as you guys are. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, Fast Growing Trees. This summer, at least what remains of it, you could spend thousands of dollars on planes, hotels, and tourist traps, or you could spend less money on a beautiful garden that will give you years of pleasure with FastGrowingTrees.com. FastGrowingTrees.com has thousands of easy-to-grow plant, shrub, and tree varieties expertly curated for your unique climate and needs, from Meyer lemons to evergreens to shade trees and everything in between. No more waiting in long lines and hauling heavy plants around. With FastGrowingTrees.com, you order online and your plants arrive at your door in just a few days. No green thumb, no problem. FastGrowingTrees, plant experts are just a Zoom chat or phone call away. Always available and eager to help. They can even walk you through your entire garden to help solve problems you're having with plants and trees. Plus, FastGrowingTrees, plant experts have specialized degrees and training to help troubleshoot from root to leaf. It's like telehealth. For your plants. And with Fast Growing Trees 30 Day Alive and Thrive Guarantee, you know everything will look great fresh out of the box. Join almost 2 million happy Fast Growing Trees customers. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash editors now to get 15% off your entire order. 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash editors. So Noah, we have a return, at least a little bit of return of... COVID cases are ticking up, at least anecdotally, I'm hearing of people again who have COVID. And we've had these uh, these uh, feints in um, the commentariat towards like, well, maybe schools aren't quite so ready to be open because they, they didn't ventilate as much as they should with all the COVID money that was showered on them. Maybe we need to re-mask. Maybe we need to sh- shut some stuff down. Again, and you think uh, all the all this needs to be pushed back against very hard, or people who are temperamentally inclined towards these restrictions will end up reimposing them. The pushback I get for noticing, and it is just noticing my environment, is that well, this is this is your paranoia rearing its ugly head. You righties were just so put off by what we had to do in the pandemic that you are sensitive to it in ways that are uh, verge on paranoia and perhaps guilty but i can't be the only one noticing all these trial balloons in the beginning of august we started to see an uptick in positive rates from wastewater testing 
which is to say that it's not as though people were showing up to hospitals and being hospitalized. That is happening. It's one, one of my least favorite phrases in the English language, wastewater testing. Yeah, it's pretty darn gross. But it's the what that suggests is that this is not being seen in hospitals per se. There's been an uptick in hospitalizations. It's some cre- it, it, doubling in some cases. But doubling in this case means from 20 hospital beds to 40 hospital mm-hmm. beds. Um, what we're seeing is an uptick in cases among people who don't who don't show up in hospitals, who don't report. That's what they're seeing in the wastewater testing. And that has put everybody on high alert. High alert in New York State. Highly mutated variants circulating, according to the, the experts and the scientists. Biden administration now leaning heavily on Congress for a new vaccine for the fall, a new iteration for this particular variant. And what accompanied that was an uptick in demand from media outlets for masking, universal masking. We saw this in segments on CBS News, in the Los Angeles Times. It was maybe, yes, maybe it's time to break out the masks. Maybe it's voluntary, but maybe it really shouldn't be. Because if you go to, say, for example, this college in in Georgia or this uh, Lionsgate Studios, which briefly reinstituted a a mandate, a mask mandate, variety of other culturally homogenous liberal enclaves have reimposed mandatory masking, indoors, outdoors, social distancing, the whole rigmarole. And then we had this piece from New York Times on Sunday, which stipulated that the pandemic closed schools, but ventilation could keep them open. That's flatly not true. The pandemic provided the rationale for keeping schools closed, but it was a particularly influential minority that wanted them closed, that kept them closed, which is why the United States, longer than any other uh, industrialized nation in the world, kept their schools closed longer, why, why uh, wealthy areas of this country had schools closed longer than poorer areas of this country, because it was cultural. And yes, I'm particularly sensitive about that, and this, why would we even introduce this notion, which is very flawed, I wrote about it at length uh, in, for, the, for the website, but why would you even introduce the notion that schools might maybe close again, if not to present parents with an ultimatum, to threaten them? with the prospect of the old bad days, the, the, the mid-pandemic status quo returning. It is a pressure campaign. And yes, it's a trial balloon. And if we don't shoot them down with extreme prejudice, the minute they appear over the horizon, it will be declared proof of concept. And yes, we will see some effort to return to the old media. Now, I don't necessarily think there's a big appetite for this sort of thing. In fact, that's all that is keeping it at bay. So yes, if I seem a little bit paranoid, a little you know trigger happy, when I see things like this, it's because I believe that the only thing preventing the restoration of mid-pandemic restrictions, perhaps not the scale at which we saw in March 2020, but something akin to 2021, 2022, where they were just zombie restrictions that were, that were evolving into a new way of life. Would I, would I see that return in the absence of a, of a real popular attack on it? A real popular hostility and frustration with it? Yes, I do. I think that's the only reason why they went away in the first place after the results of the off-year elections in 2021, and I could see them coming back. So, MBD, what is the, the science around masking now? What's the best <laughs> evidence on the efficacy of these things? Um, <laughs> it is extremely highly disputed area. Basically, every study from before COVID that showed that surgical masks or cloth masks were not good at preventing the spread of um, viruses like COVID has been challenged 
uh, 86, uh, whatever, um, because of, of pressure within the scientific community. Um, and studies showing, like, if you read um, Zeynep Tufeki at the New York Times, who sort of acted as uh, a bodyguard on the masking debate for the New York Times, you know, her her last summation of the, of the evidence was basically a mask possibly could help prevent some amount of spread of COVID. Uh, a single scientist told her, now an expert supposedly, but that was that that was the best that could be mustered up in the defense. There's no study at all that showed masks being highly effective at spread at stopping the spread of COVID. Often the ones that were used to hype up masks, like there was a Kansas study, basically they confused the the wave-like nature of COVID with and the wave-like nature of mask mandates that follow as COVID comes into a community with the effectiveness of masks. And it, it was obviously confounded. Um, but it was adopted and remains a symbol. It remains what Dr. Anthony Fauci called it, I think very revealingly and maybe even accidentally early in the pandemic. He said it was a symbol of the sort of thing we need to be doing. That is, it was like a kind of public, visible reminder to be careful, to keep distance, to reduce your socialization as much as possible, whatever. But he didn't say it was a tool because he knew better. Um, and I think we all know better now. I mean, um, and uh, like I said, I, I tend to... I tend to suspect the the studies that show that masks have harms are probably right because especially for young children who are you know snotting into them rebreathing stale air um and you know harming their own social and 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 linguistic development by wearing them and having others around them wear them Charlie I've earned the right to be paranoid. I think this is a preposterous word to use. Paranoid. We've already been through it once. It just happened. This is the time to prophylactically say no. There's this Edmund Burke quote that I love and I often include in my writing. He's talking about Americans, contrasting them with the British. He says, They augur misgovernment at a distance and snuff the approach of tyranny in every tainted breeze. Well, I didn't last time. I was somewhat indulgent. I didn't know the scale and scope of the disease. I'm not a health expert. I was told it would be 15 days. We weren't sure at that point whether it hurt adults or children or both. And I didn't augur misgovernment at a distance, at least not enough. I didn't snuff the approach of tyranny in every tainted breeze. But I'm not going to make that mistake twice all of the libertarian instincts that i have within me were suppressed some of them i think reasonably so and they won't be this time it's not paranoia if you've seen it happen already a couple of years ago it's not paranoia if you've seen the people who argued against excess having been vindicated 
if you've seen the convoys of emigrants out of the places that are doing this and into the places that are not, if you've read about what has happened to the educational achievement and prospects of so many people, a lot of them disadvantaged. So no, I will add to what Noah said and merely say, this isn't paranoia. This is a reasonable precaution that will be taken, I think, this time around by pretty much everyone who has declined to drink the Kool-Aid. No, I asked a question to you. We will significantly remask in the fall and winter here, yes or no? Well, what does significantly mean? Who's we? Mm, you'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll notice many, many more masks. Oh, I already not do. Have... Yeah, and I have no problem with voluntary behavior like that. I, uh, I find it a little <laughs> bit weird. But there's a lot of people who do very weird things that don't correspond with anything that uh, I find rational or reasonable. And I can't be going around judging everybody that way. Will there be uh, significant, let's say, mandates, mandatory masking? Uh, I don't think so. But will we see that in some heavily liberal enclaves if the drumbeat about this new COVID wave uh, reaches a, a decibel level that we can't ignore? Then, yeah, I do think we'll see that. But only in very isolated, limited locales. And there will be some Democratic hand-wringing about it. Because they do know in an instinctual level that it's bad for them. MBD? I judge. <laughs> I, can't, I can't help but judge. I'm sorry when I see like a two-year-old in a mask, and I've seen more of them lately, locally. I I find anger and sadness swelling up in me. Uh, I, try not to do, I try not to do anything, uh, except I try to roll my eyes, I grit my teeth, I pick up my coffee from the the counter and get out of there before I say something stupid. But these, you know, social behaviors create norms and expectations. And, you know, I consider this like on the edge of abusive at this point. Like now, given what we know, given what we experienced, given what we saw, and, um, and I'm determined that we never go through it again. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I know that there are some people who in their heads think like, I'm protecting my 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 grandmother who's paranoid about it in a care home by masking my child and myself all week before we go visit her. Um, you know, I, I know that exists out there and it's sincere, um, but it still um, flies in the face of the evidence of what we know and um, and also um, it, it it it's also a kind of like. <laughs> insult against statistical thinking like if you're that afraid you shouldn't even get in a car i mean uh if you're that afraid of mortality um because you're you're likely to get yourself killed in that uh than by failing to wear a mask in a dunkin donuts charlie i don't think so no I, like, no, I don't care what people choose to do voluntarily. I will privately judge them, as is my right. But I care enormously when government force is applied. And I don't think that voters are going to put up with it. And I think because Democrats understand that, 
and realize that the tide has turned, they will be wary about asking them to as we run up to an election, not least because it's the sort of issue that will play into the hands of Ron DeSantis, whom they fear. And I think this is a a challenge for DeSantis, that the one thing that he got right, that he's known for, that led to that massive in-migration into Florida doesn't seem to factor anymore for people mm-hmm. because it's in the rearview mirror. Well, yep. how do you change that? You bring it back. I don't think it's going to happen. So we're not going to see mandates, but as Noah points out, in certain urban areas, you're going to see, and they never entirely went away, but you're going to see a, a, a real noticeable return to masking. It doesn't matter what Democratic politicians say, you'll have so-called experts talking about it, and that will be Enough for people who pride themselves on supposedly following the science. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus Digital Subscription Service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our metered paywall. Your way, if you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads, your way. If it floats your boat to dive deeper into the NR community with commenting on articles and blog posts with invitations to exclusive calls and events with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures, MBD, Charlie, and I are doing one of these calls in a a day or two. Very intimate, small number of people, totally unmoderated, just People raise their hand and ask or say whatever they want, and we bat it around. It's uh, a lot of fun, and that's uh, another one of the advantages of being a member. So if you haven't already signed up, please, please, please join tens of thousands of your fellow National View readers as a member of NR Plus. On top of everything else, it's a very, very important way to support our journalism. We need people to pay for what they read and, and listen to and watch at National Review. We don't need them to pay a lot. We just need them to pay a little bit. And if you're not doing it now, I beg of you that you, you pony up the, uh, the little bit it takes for an introductory, to pay for an introductory offer. So with that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you have recently read a biography of James K. Polk by Robert Mary. Yeah, Robert Mary's, uh, it's called A Country of Vast Designs. It's a great title. James K. Polk, The Mexican War and the Conquest of the American Continent. And it is, uh, you know, James K. Polk was sort of the the first dark horse presidential candidate in American history. The first person who kind of emerged from a convention by surprise uh, and and not perfectly well known nationally. Um, And he's also sort of the, the second act or the second effective act of Jacksonianism. Um, you know, Martin Van Buren had been elected after Jackson with Jackson's coalition, but kind of a failed presidency and, um, you know, uh, an in, a rather inconsequential figure, which um, Polk was not. Uh, Robert Mary's book is really grippingly written and you'll find yourself like almost sweating re- reading the details of the Democratic Convention in Baltimore in 1844. It's it's quite good. Noah, you've recently been losing some sleep. Yeah, Michael's light item was very scholarly. I, I lack the faculties <laughs> to uh, match that. I, 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 if I sound subdued, it's because I am. Um, 
For the last couple of mornings, every single morning at 5.04 a.m., I have been awoken to a sound I have not heard in, gosh, 35 years, 30 years at least. It is the theme song to the 1990, 1989 exclusive to Game Boy video game Super Mario Land, <laughs> which somehow erupts through my house in the middle of the morning, <laughs> forces me out of bed, and by the time I'm, I'm anywhere near the vicinity of the song, it stops. It's an alarm on something. And we finally found it this morning. It was some sort of a toy that my children unpacked and turned on the alarm, and it's just been haunting me <laughs> for the last for the last several days. The accidental the accidental it. alarm is one of the one of the worst things that you. And can then it's gone the, the second you get near it, and you just have to wait for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. Charlie, speaking of terrible things, you took a trip to St. Petersburg to see a Yankees Rays game. Yes, the trip to St. Petersburg was lovely. That wasn't the terrible thing. It was the Yankees-Rays game that was the terrible thing. We had a great time with our friends down there. I'd forgotten how much hotter it is in southern or mid-Florida than it is up in north Florida. We had a fantastic time with them, had some good food and drinks, but the Yankees are dire. They won the night before. Garrett Cole was pitching we went on the saturday tyler glasnow was pitching for the rays the yankees didn't show up they didn't you saw score. come on you saw you saw two yankee hits <laughs> and score a run <laughs> <laughs> didn't score a single run they were just off there were various moments they could have got back into the game they didn't they didn't bother to run fast between the bases my seven-year-old was sad i had told him beforehand the yankees would likely lose but he said to me i I just wanted to see one run. That's all I wanted. I've never seen the Yankees score a run in person. Well, they didn't do it for him on Saturday, unfortunately. But the trip was was great overall, if you ignore the uh, reason we went. <laughs> the outcome. <laughs> so I love to hear from our listeners, and I got a very generous note from a listener named Sarah. And, and this is for you too, Charlie. So, so listen up. She is in lending. And she endeavored to explain the yield curve to me in this, this very, very warm and thoughtful note. So, so here, here it goes. Generally, an interest rate curve slopes up and to the right. Right now, the short end of the curve, overnight borrowings is the shortest end of the curve, is at approximately 5.50%, while the long end of the curve, say the 10-year term, is at 4.75%. Now, it goes on from here, but I'm, I don't know about you, Charlie, but I'm already lost. And it has nothing to, to do with, uh, uh, with the worthiness of, of Sarah's explanation here, which I, I take it as cogent and clear. I don't know whether I don't understand interest rates or I don't understand curves or I just don't understand them when they're mixed up together. But does that, does that first couple sentences, does, does that track, track for you? Well, no, because I don't have a location within the graph to start i i would this would be one of these episodes on my podcast where i would say wait, wait, wait let's go back what's a curve <laughs> yeah and then they would have to explain the history of the curve to me and then i could maybe proceed we should have sarah we should just have a, a special episode charlie just just you and me with sarah and may, maybe we'll invite bonson too just about the yield curve and and see after like 45 minutes whether we should have a competition i tell you what email rich and copy me in and the best explanation of this wins a prize, right? <laughs> we'll, we'll read out the name on the editors or invite you to some event or something. 
Anyway, Sarah, thanks so much for the note. It's time now for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is a recent piece from our friend David Bonson in the magazine, Our Japanese Economy. Uh, David mm-hmm. and I... Theme of uh, yours. Yeah, too. David and I disagree sometimes on some things, but uh, we're very, we're both very concerned that America is entering a, a period of not just um, a kind of low expectations um, culturally, but uh, those also have an economic effect too, where we we habituate ourselves to stagnation and to degrowth and low population, low production, low gains in productivity, and ultimately lowering quality of life. And he, he's been sounding this alarm from his perspective for a long time. Uh, I've been for a shorter time uh, doing it um, from from where I stand and from my, my more cultural background. And... Um, yeah, I recommend what he writes. No, it's your pick. It's an editorial. Drop out, Asa. Uh, and I, I think the tone of this is absolutely perfect. Uh, it's very difficult to judge a person's, anybody who gets into this arena, uh, what their motives are. It's it's hard to get in. It's sometimes even harder to get out. And um, we, it, it notes that his heart is likely in the right place, and I, I agree with that. But his utility in the race... Um, has reached a definitive end point, and the time of the great winnowing is upon us, and the sooner the better. Charlie. It's your piece on one of my favorite people in the whole world, Kamala <laughs> Harris. Uh, I thought apparently... you were going to save a vague. <laughs> no, well, neither of them are in my good books. But you take aim at those who have decided that Kamala Harris is now beyond criticism or that anyone who warns that she might plausibly become president, given Joe Biden's age and state, is beyond the pale or perhaps a racist. And this is, of course, crazy. For a start, this popped up because Nikki Haley said it, another woman of color. So Nikki Haley is now a white supremacist. But more important is that Kamala Harris is, she has been in various positions in her life, in a role of great authority and public trust. She's the vice president of the United States. If something happens to Joe Biden, who is, what, 82? She will become the president of the United States, an extremely powerful office. Of course people can warn others about that if they disagree with her political stances or just dislike her. This is a... A real problem, the meeting of this hair-trigger intersectionality and the existing and very real power structures in the United States is a problem if you want to limit government. There is nobody who is off limits. Kamala Harris should not be judged differently than anybody else, but she also should not be judged differently than anybody else. And I think you push back against this in a way that is absolutely necessary. Thanks, Charlie. My pick is a Dan McLaughlin piece from the new issue of the print magazine. It's a profile of Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa, and there are many, many worse things that could happen and probably will than having uh, someone besides Donald Trump 
win the presidential nomination and pick Kim Reynolds as his or her running mate. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Babel and Fast Growing Trees. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.